Astonishing Legends would like to thank Harry's, A&E, The Great Courses Plus, Quip, and our contributors at Patreon.com for making tonight's show possible. When you endeavor to create something, frequently the most rewarding aspect of it is gaining the respect of your peers. More specifically, the peers that you stand in awe of yourself. Tonight's guest is one of those people, Jim Perry. Jim's podcast, Euphemet, describes itself as an audio documentary show, and that's an apt description. But in many ways, that falls short of describing the actual experience of listening to it, which we would call immersive. Jim was inspired by Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM when he developed the show, but he didn't stop with that ingredient of inspiration. He took it much further, incorporating the tones and styles of art house sci-fi films, street art, Swiss design, indie EDM, and guerrilla documentary projects into his finished product. Tonight, we'll uncover what shaped his point of view and explore some fascinating stories about the people he's crossed paths with along the way. When it comes to the paranormal, Jim Perry is embedded. And as we've discovered ourselves, the more intertwined you are with these kinds of stories, the stranger things get. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. We are in search of the other side, the thing under your bed, that signal of unknown origin, and the true stories behind the strange phenomena that are outside the sphere of popular consciousness. Jim Perry. Join us tonight for a special interview with the host of the critically acclaimed Euphemet podcast. We are? I don't know. I, are we? I, I have no idea. <laughs> we're, we're ahead a few weeks. We're behind a few weeks. Uh, <laughs> but apparently we are for three in a row even. Oh my God. We better get to work. Folks, what a long, hot summer it's been. Uh, we've, we've had a lot going on behind the scenes, but that's beginning to settle down, giving us time to focus back up on the show as we begin that turn into the spooky season. Oh, yes. You know, it's my favorite time of year, and it's just around the corner. We have a lot to talk about tonight, so we'll keep the housekeeping short here. Thanks to everyone for all of your support of the show. It's really allowed us to branch out and get involved in even more interesting aspects of what we do. We wouldn't be here without you, so thank you so much for that. You complete us. Oh, God, that makes me shudder more than any <laughs> frightening story. Be, also, I, I, the other thing I want to say is thanks for supporting our sponsors. Most importantly, that's what really keeps us going. So we really want to thank everybody for that. It's what's kept the show alive and also keeps it free to listen to. Yeah, absolutely, and most sincerely from both of us. By the way, folks, if you haven't done it already, download our favorite podcast app, Himalaya, and give us a follow on there. It's free, and it'll work on your iOS or Android device. It's a great way to keep up with not only us, but all of your favorite shows. So pull that down and install it and follow Astonishing Legends. All right, let's get to our interview with Jim Perry. Okay, so we're on with a very special guest, Jim Perry of the Euphemet podcast, which is a super cool show. If you haven't heard it, you got to check it out. So uh, Jim, say hello to uh, all our listeners. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me 
me on. I'm also a fan of your show. I'm into it very much. So I'm digging. I haven't got all the way through it yet, but I'm uh, very much into this Patterson-Gimlin series you're doing right now as it's uh, very close to my own heart. And so, uh, yeah, you're revealing some excellent stuff in that very, very strange journey. Oh, my God. Thanks for the kind words. We, we had a lot of fun with that one. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Euphemet? Yeah, you know, I mean, so Euphemet is an audio documentary show. I started producing it in this format, uh, well, originally from the start, but in just bits and pieces. And I would uh, intercut a lot of interview stuff. And of course, uh, I came to the paranormal through osmosis, essentially, listening to Art Bell since, you know, 1992 or 1993 or whatever. And a tremendous influence on me. And living in the Pacific Northwest has been a tremendous influence on me in the amount of lore that we have here. And so those factors combined always essentially provided this suggestion to me to engage with this phenomenon in a very active level. And so after a couple years, a few years of doing a, a, a more heavily based interview show, I really decided to integrate myself into these communities, into these experiences, and essentially do my play on this American life, right? How would this sound if this was an audio documentary? How would these stories sound if they're engaged with that? And that required me to, you know, really get comfortable with some very uncomfortable places and experiences and sometimes even individuals. And really, I found myself you know, sleeping on the couch of someone that I never thought I would in a situation I never thought I'd be a part of questioning what reality was. So here I am talking to you guys. Wow. I just got to say, having listened to your show, I just love the way it's produced, the sound design, the music, the way everything is layered. It's all things that we had in mind when we started and never executed successfully. So uh, <laughs> it's, very, it's very well done. Well, how did, how did you start out as a documentarian? It was that more in the visual medium and you were drawn to audio or? That's a great question. Yeah, you know, it actually did start with visuals. So my background is I am a creative director. And for years, I had worked in an agency setting with, you know, those Fortune 100 companies producing all sorts of content for them. And this content would usually take the form of magazines or short films, etc. And uh, filmmaking was always really important to me in a lot of different ways. And once I had to start creating documentary-based short films for some of these companies, I really was allowed the chance to gain a skill set that I never thought that I'd really have and a confidence in storytelling and doing that in various forms of media. So when I began podcasting and I looked around for inspiration and was really highly influenced by public radio shows as much as I was paranormal radio, I said, uh, nobody's done this. Right. So like, why don't I try to do that? Can I do that? How expensive is that? What, what does that even look like? Is that a <laughs> thing? So as soon as I started to like really put my energies towards that, and it was a very slow process. It took me a long, long time to the point where I was actually traveling and really engaging with this phenomenon. But it was the best thing I ever did because it opened myself up as a not just a storyteller, but as a participant 
in this world in a different way and really allowed me an opportunity to talk to more and more people about this phenomenon in ways that hopefully they could connect with, right? In different a myriad of ways. And that's through the people involved. That's through these experiencers. That's through these people who have had their lives transformed by the supernatural, the paranormal, the occult. And so to break bread with these individuals in this way is so much more fulfilling than shooting a short documentary on a car that's about to come out. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we I, all three of us came from in, the same world here. Yeah, yeah. I've actually go. done that for some of your same clients there in a, in a past There you life. go. Yeah. You come out the other side of that and you have discovered that you have all these skill sets that you've been using for other people exactly. for a decade. Our paths go, are very similar, very similar. It's interesting to me. And now it's pointed towards spookiness. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Your show has undergone a little bit of a transformation, right? In that it started off, I believe, strictly as research based, and then you were doing more in the field experiments and participation, and that kind of shifted the show. Yeah, it, it's the same euphemet, but mm-hmm. a very different show. Yeah, so You've Met really is the tale of two shows at this point, which anyone can essentially, if people want to check it out, you can on Patreon for our Patreon, because past that Patreon wall, you discover that there was a completely different series that I produced called Euphemet that only had shades of what was to become. So Mm. when I started out this show and this Euphemet project, and maybe project is the better term for it instead of show, as the language as the communication forms and the media that we produce shifts and transcends. But originally it was inspired by Art Bell, inspired by classic late night talk radio. Mm. And even to the point where we produced Euphemet as a live call-in show for a portion of time, for about a year. Was it fun for you to do that? It was really fun. I mean, it's a completely different kind of fun than I'm having now. Yeah. It, it would be hard to quantify, like, what's more fun? I, I guess I'd probably say what I'm doing now is more fun, just right. because there is a different kind of stress involved yeah. that maybe plays to my disposition a little bit more naturally, Sure. right? Sure. But the live show experience was, I could only imagine if it were successful. Right. Like right. It, the show did OK, but it wasn't a huge success. It wasn't syndicated or something. Um, I was essentially on a, a, a low power FM community radio station and online for a, a streaming paranormal network. And so they were syndicated in that fashion. But that live show experience, when you start to have the callers, you know, weigh in with their own experiences, it adds this level of intimacy with your listener that's hard to accomplish so quickly, I guess. You know, as podcasters, I'm I'm sure you guys have experienced this as well. You do develop a, a pretty intimate relationship with your listeners. And that can be shared through appearances or emails or social or you know, what have you, a myriad of different ways, right? But with the call in show, everyone is hearing that communication. Everyone is hearing that relationship be built. Right. So when you find both euphemets, you're finding two different versions of your show specifically when you look for those. What does euphemet mean? Um, People, you know, might connect that to Baphomet. Where where does it come from? What is that title? I mean, it's it's absolutely made up. 
That's for sure. As you guys know, from coming from marketing, sometimes the, the best thing is to create your own thing yes. and something that's ownable, right? Yes. Especially in terms of a brand. So I, I came from that angle and, and essentially it's, it's a little bit of a euphemism. It's a play on words of a euphemistic Baphomet, oh, a playful yeah. devil, you know? So, um, yeah, you know, it was very important for me to express something that sounded mysterious and occult in its own right. Yeah. that was esoteric, right? And if manifestation is real, if willing something, if creating symbols and language that then imbues, you know, certain real world properties with power, oh, yeah. then I knew that name was going to be very important and special. And so I should essentially try to conjure perhaps an identity, a lineage, a legacy into that name. And at the time, I don't think I was thinking in those terms. I just thought like from the brand perspective, let's do something interesting, unique. So people will ask about it. On the other hand, it's not a real word. So you have to, <laughs> so when people ask like, what is your show? You go, let me write it down on your hand right now yeah, like, yeah. with a pen. Cause <laughs> that's hilarious. And by the way, it's so funny. I'm hearing what's uh, the creative director in you with words like uh, branding and leveraging social media. You're, that part of you is dying a hard death, I think, but, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. your, by the way, your logo is just gorgeous. It's just a beautiful, I love your logo. So. Oh, really, thanks so much. Yeah. yeah my, my, my new logo is done by a, a German graphic designer named Simon Marchner oh, very and cool. his nice. full-time gig is essentially doing poster artwork for oh, bands cool. and things of that nature. So yeah, he's, Extremely talented. I'm beyond stoked with what he did. With that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, before we get into talking about your personal experiences connected with your documenting these types of strange events, I wanted to ask you, are you a Seattle native? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, <laughs> I moved there and went to college there and then spent about, I think, all in all, about 15 years, I think, all in all, in all there. Oh, okay. uh, it's where I lived there with my wife. It's where my career started. That's where, you know, most of my adult friends are from now. Right, uh, right. You know, so yeah. So I, I actually moved from there about a year ago to a very small cow town out in the middle of nowhere in Oregon. Ah. Uh, but yeah, I still claim Seattle as, uh, yeah, my hometown, both, uh, you know, if, if not anything spiritually, for sure. Right, right. Well, I went to the University of Washington for two years and oh, uh, nice. had, had visited. Yeah, I didn't, you know, Seattle's a place I've been to quite a number of times and yeah. over a long time. I was going to ask you, do you feel that it's any more strange than anywhere else? Because as we'll talk about a little bit, you know, regarding your experiences, there are certainly other areas West Virginia, for example, or Kentucky, yeah. you know, Ohio, uh -huh. that seem to have a lot more than their share of strange experiences. And when I was in Seattle for all that time, and also in the states of Washington, Idaho, and Oregon, like there's strangeness everywhere, but it seemed pretty middle ground to me. Like, it wasn't that strange other than it's very damp on the coast. Other than, you know, other than yeah. that. Do you find that there's any, anything more uh, odd about the Northwest than other areas since you have traveled so much around the country? Well, I'm starting to believe that, the frequency of strangeness is dictated by an individual's ability to immerse themselves in that location and with how much energy you put into it sometimes. I'm starting to believe that a lot of the phenomenon that is out there is correlated, that in some regards, seemingly sort of the same. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's a this trickster quality, right, that we've yes. read about and heard about sure. and that I've experienced numerous times. And I think that trickster comes in, you know, different varieties. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about the Pacific Northwest and Seattle and the Puget Sound in particular is that it is steeped with lore mm-hmm. that even if at this moment is not uh, completely resonating, even if at this moment there's not an incredible UFO flap or multiple Sasquatch sightings that are getting media coverage, I think that its history alone makes it a, a, a very, very strange place. And if, and if you look into liminality and this idea of liminal spaces, of this in-between that can create perhaps a, a heightened paranormally active location, then Seattle in particular is that. Seattle is squeezed between two bodies of water and two incredibly huge mountain ranges, right? Mm-hmm. So Seattle is in between, right? And I think because of that, there is a different energy there. And there's almost a conflict. There's a conflict there. There is this strange, but there is this very modern there's this very technocratic, there's this very consumerist, very 3D reality, right? Almost oppressive attitude that's been placed on not just Seattle, but the Northwest in general that says, no, nothing else is going on. We're the masters of this reality and mm-hmm. we can control like what, how we interpret that. That's my experience in Seattle is mm. that, you know, when you go out into the forest of West Virginia, you feel like, oh, yeah, all right, I'm in it now. I am in the mix. Like very quickly, you feel that energy. And other places, these vortex locations, these paranormal hotspots, you know, maybe tonight we'll talk about Sedona, Arizona and the Skinwalker Ranch and and these places that are dotted across the globe that almost invite you in to play in a much more conscious and consistent manner. The thing with Pacific Northwest is you have to dip your toes in a little bit deeper. And to be honest, personally, there are only a few places within the Pacific Northwest that I've experienced this sort of activity, Mm -hmm. that I've allowed myself to open some sort of door within that region that allows me a peek inside. And it's been frustrating me, actually. It's been frustrating me that my relationship to my home is, is not allowing me in yet. Right. Whereas I travel, you know, all over the country, but extensively around the world and am greeted, am invited to participate in this sort of like crazy paranormal activity to the point where reckless abandon, right? But my own home is challenging me to dig deeper. And so that's, that's affecting my work right now. You know, it's, it's affecting my work tremendously in terms of what my future projects are. And I have, on the back end of Euphemet, I have a project I'm working on that I can't really talk about very much yet, but it's surrounding 1947 and, and the sure. major UFO flaps that happened there. And well, you have the no idea what you're talking <laughs> about. You've, you've really done a good job of keeping that a secret. <laughs> right? 1947, exactly. yeah, yeah, nothing yeah. happened. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I can't, I can't help myself, but, but divulge. Here's the problem is like, it's the most exciting prospect right now that I'm working on. That's great. Is, is, is this project, but it harkens back to me having to dig back to 1947 to try to unravel some sort of esoteric pieces of what happened there yeah. to allow my home to let me enter into its paranormal activity. Sure, sure. <laughs> 
Hello everyone, I'm Diet Lovecraft and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about some of your experiences and some of your episodes. And one of the first ones that is really prominent for us is your whole connection to the whole Hellier story and Greg and Dana Newkirk with Week and Weird and all of that and the way that that story unfolded. A lot of our listeners are uh, were very interested in the Hellier series. and Yeah, uh, it, it kind of uh, perked my ears up to hear your name mentioned in episode one as maybe bringing limited involvement, but bringing the key players together. I created Hellier. I started it. No. (laughs) (laughs) And then let him have it. The truth. Yeah. Yeah. You guys just run with it. Uh, You know, it's too muggy down there. I'm not interested. Um, It happened. uh, I mean, I would say perchance, but I I think that Carl Pfeiffer, who is the director. Yes. And uh, one of stars of Hellier would say that it happened by synchronicity that the playing field was set up in this way that led him to the project with Greg and Dana. And to just reset, I had discovered this idea of the Kentucky Goblins and the Hopkinsville case and all of these strange occurrences that were happening in the in coal country down there in the hills of Appalachia of these very diminutive little figures that are somewhere between a goblin and gray aliens that were inflicting certain townspeople with terror they would uh, visit homesteads at night and appear in windows and, and you know like talk about nothing more frightening than like a little bald cryptid like creature you know just staring into your window at night like that is the main ingredient of nightmares if, if like in my personal opinion uh <laughs> <laughs> I was so transfixed by uh, Greg and Dana's take on it uh, through an article that they had done on Week and Weird and that they had started to dip their toes into the goblin phenomenon down there and what that could mean. And and offline conversations uh, and more private conversations with Greg and I stimulated this conversation even deeper into what could this all mean? What is the connection between this phenomenon and cave systems in places like Appalachia, but also back to the Northwest, places like the Cascade Mountains and going down into the Sierra Nevadas and, and the volcanic systems. It seemed like that this very surface level phenomenon of these little cryptids, which is, trust me, like startling enough, was perhaps connected to a much bigger narrative. And what if this could be a connector or the insight into some broader phenomena. And so that's what really attracted me to the story, uh, let alone this idea that Greg was directly, essentially confronted via email by someone who was experiencing this, experiencing essentially a goblin-like visitation in their home in in sort of present-day rural rural Kentucky and West Virginia. So to see that they were actively pursuing and engaging with this topic right now was very fascinating to me. So he came on and we did a a very in-depth interview about the story so far. At some point, and and you can uh, essentially find that on Patreon right now. Just a little cheap plug on there. No, do it, <laughs> uh, do it. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Patreon.com/slash/euphemet has that episode with Greg and I, where we discuss this story so far, and essentially paranormal investigator, former ghost hunter cast member Carl Pfeiffer had found an article about Euphemet on Week and Weird. 
and uh, Greg and Dana were kind enough to include me on this top list of podcasts or something. And Carl stumbled on that. It was below his Spirits of the Stanley uh, video series. So he started to listen to it and found this Goblin episode. And a series of coincidences or synchronicities occurred after that that led Carl to believe that he may be pulled into this situation and that this thing was kind of calling to him, both creatively, but also synchronistically. So what happened from there is Carl Pfeiffer uh, with Connor Randall, who is his uh, investigative partner at the Stanley Hotel at the time, had met Greg and Dana at uh, the Stanley Hotel, the notoriously haunted and, and wild inspiration for Stephen King's The Shining. And they started breaking bread. And I think Carl's creative juice was like, hey, why don't we, why don't we explore this more? Why don't we go down there? Why don't we, if we, we can see if we can decode and decipher with some of this. And essentially what they did is they just accepted the invitation. And I think mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if anyone goes and watches Hellier, they will see, in my experience, the closest thing to real boots on the ground investigation into very very anomalous phenomenon that is pulling you deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole as you go Mm. and guess what there's not always that um i don't know nice little resolution uh, resolution like there's no there's no bow on anything no and it's it's interesting because uh when it came out we were you know cross promoting we don't know greg and dana really that well but we've traded tweets for years now and had a very kind relationship on twitter but we're cross promoting a little bit and we did a series on kelly hopkinsville about a year after they posted that blog post not knowing that they had done that or that you had done it so and then i found the blog post when we were doing our research that was on Weekend Weird, the same one. So uh, oh, wow. <laughs> that was about a year later. And it was just part of our, you know, our sco- our approach is a little different. We were all really focusing on the family and the accusations that they, specifically our whole series was kind of about how irritated we were that they were just written off as drunk hillbillies. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm from the South, so I took particular offense <laughs> at that. But, sure, um, sure. you know, so we covered all that and everything, and it, and it was really fascinating. But the other aspects of it that you talk about, because there was, there was even some synchronicity for us with regard to how we came across across it because the other weird synchronistic thing that happened when we did it was that it had lined up perfectly with the eclipse and the fact that the totality was passing over Kelly Hopkinsville pretty much right when we released like the second part of our series on it so there was oh, a wow. there was a whole lot of bizarreness to that but we've been so busy we're kind of overworked all the time, which is fine. You know, that's what we do. But I didn't have a chance to watch Hellier. Uh, Forrest had seen it pretty much when it came out. I watched the whole series yesterday. So because I wanted to see it before we talked to you. So um, by the way, today for our listeners who, you know, don't know when we're recording things, it's Memorial Day today. Yeah. So I watched the whole thing yesterday and I was just really intrigued with it. You know, we had listeners that had varying reactions about being really into it. And then other people who, like you said, were upset that it didn't have a resolution. But well, they that, didn't find a goblin. Yeah, that yeah, they that... didn't find a goblin. But that's, to me, it's like you said, it's a very realistic take on a boots on the ground investigation. And it also, it really closely parallels all the experiences that John Keel had. Just yes. being messed with the whole time. Yeah. and. That's what I thought was really fascinating about it and how Carl shot it and how it's portrayed when was how parallel it was to everything that Keel went through when he was investigating the Mothman in Point Pleasant. So that it, it was very, very interesting to me. 
Yeah, the, the, the carrot on that stick keeps getting moved further and further away. But uh, we had a question, though, about the title of your episode, As Above, So Below, and being a mantra in alchemy. But what meaning specifically does it have to your idea about this subject in this event? What was interesting to me about that title was really the literal interpretation of something seemingly is happening below the surface. And whatever that is, there is a reflection above in our world. So being familiar with the, the alchemical reference and what that entails, that, that's really the converse of that, the literal interpretation of like, hey, there's some strangeness down below and there is now strangeness up above. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's as deep as I really got with that one to tell you the truth. Are you still involved with the Hellier Project? Are they doing a second season of that? Or is it, what's going on with that? Do you know? They are doing a second season. I don't think they've released when that is going to happen or anything like that. Right. And, and I'm only involved with Hellier on a very precursory level as I'm, I'm sort of in the family of uh, the planet weird. Right. Uh, we're friends and we're collaborators. But, you know, I got to give credit to those guys that Hellier is, is, it is something that I'm not directly involved in, but has inspired the trajectory of some of my work and the proximity of my relationship with Planet Weird even. Yeah. For example, the second season that I just wrapped taping for about a week and a half ago or so, I brought Carl Pfeiffer out with me on the road. And so Carl Pfeiffer we are creating short films for every episode of Euphemet. Oh, cool. And these will be released on YouTube exclusively through Planet Weird. What a great and idea. So, yeah, so in between Hellier, you're going to get to experience Euphemet, an entire season of, of short films of Euphemet at that point. So Hellier is, is certainly not my project, but I do my best to really spread the word as much as I can for my friends. I, I do feel I, I have a relationship to the project in terms of some of those um, first qualifying storytelling opportunities, right? Like how does one frame up the craziness of what is going on down there? And to see what they've done with their story is great and is testament to, I think, what folks can do themselves now with paranormal content and with content in general, right? You had mentioned the reaction from folks and, and how varied it is. Yes. And that's how it is working in this field too. And that's why, that's why I feel like it's, it's the best representation I've seen of what it actually is like to turn stuff on and let it breathe because it is complex. It is nerve wracking and it pulls you deeper, deeper and deeper. in. and I don't know if there's a resolution to any of this stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, there's some debate, you know, as to whether or not we're allowed to know, to paraphrase what our friend Rich Adam wrote in the Mothman Prophecy script, but the adaptation, but just like, you know, we're not <laughs> yeah. allowed to know. And here's another thing I want to say about that in general, and something that I think is really great. And this is sort of a, this isn't a weird aside about podcasting in general, and specifically paranormal podcasting and independent people working in it, and, and, and also in, in investigation as well. What I like about everyone cross-promoting everything and everyone working together is, and Greg even mentioned it in the Hellier series, that he felt like more investigators should be sharing information and working together because there's power in that. 
And I completely agree with that. And I think that's really admirable. And I think in this world where, specifically in the podcasting space, which is, you know, blowing up with all these huge corporate entities moving in and spending, you know, millions of dollars and sending celebrities into haunted houses or whatever they're doing, I don't think they can ever match the power of this sincere cross-support that those of us that are independent are offering each other. And I think that's really cool. And it feels good to be part of that synergy. It's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It's important. It's important because I, I think that the shared experiences and the shared knowledge is really what brings some sort of construct to our understanding of what is happening to us, even even at an emotional level, right? Right. right. And I think things like history of phenomenon and of other people's experience is really important. And I think that's one of the things that in terms of a, a mainstream TV show or a mainstream, like you said, like some weird podcast where they send Tracy Morgan into a haunted house. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think that's a real thing yet, but you know, no, it's, I'm um, sure it's around be. the corner. It should be. I'm sure it's yeah. around the right, corner. Right, right, right. I think what projects like that are missing is context. Yes, and the producers of those shows have, I think, in a lot of cases don't have any real experience. They just know that this is a hot topic that they can try to mold into something that will get lots of ears or eyes. And uh, they don't have the benefit of being directly involved in it like all of the independent producers do, you know? Yeah, and and I get it too. I mean, like coming that we all come from marketing, yeah. you know, when you have a pitch that lands on your desk and you have to come up with creative for a client in a week that satisfies A, B, and C, yeah. So you already have this sort of construct in terms of what you're supposed to deliver and what the messaging is supposed to be like. And you're supposed to become an expert on this topic in short order and display how you can execute things based on real insight. And your insight is only, it only goes as far as what your research is. Right. Sometimes even as far as what your research department does for you. Right. right? So right. that's the construct with those. And so I get it. And sometimes it works and most of the time it doesn't. But the advantage that individuals like us have, in addition to a community, is that we actually get time to really invest in this material, not just not just boots on the ground, but reading. Yes, <laughs> yes. You're, 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 you're dropping. You're, you're talking about John Keel a lot. Yes. Um, in my bag right now, like I haven't read it. I haven't read the whole thing yet. But it's kind of like my little. I don't have it with me. Is Disneyland of the Gods? Right. 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 We get to spend time on this stuff in a way that makes our reporting our investigation our storytelling so much more earnest yes so much more closer to the source material right and then once you start getting out there yourself too you're able to add this other dimension and what i like about what you guys do is your ability to tell these stories in long form and actually give them time to breathe right? Because yeah, yeah. that's needed. There's something to be said about truncated uh, sort of synopsises of what these events really do. But as you display, I think, in your work, the context, the, the complicated nature of any of this phenomenon and the human element to most of all of it is fascinating and deserves time to really be seen. Yeah. And a lot of times that gets overlooked. And like you said, the stories get packaged and a lot of the really critical details get left out. And that I think the reason that people listen to our show is because they want to hear the real version of the story and not the the neat one that's been you know parsed out with uh, entertainment in front of research. 
and by the way, there's a place for the other side of that too, but that's why we yep. do do what we do. So, uh, well, yep. let's talk a little bit about some other experiences that you've had. Yeah. Um, speaking of being able to let it breathe and stretch out for <laughs> six episodes. Yeah. Uh, that we the, just did this huge <laughs> Bigfoot series, which I know you're partway through. And it really, to be fair, it's not really about Bigfoot in so much as it's about specifically the Patterson-Gimlin film. Yeah, really, there is a human element to all of this. And for that film, it was these two guys, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, and what did it do to their lives? And, and you know, that's a story in and of itself, and that's largely what we examined in the first half of the series, and the other half about really the film itself and, and you know, is it authentic? But the other people that do come into contact, or they claim to, with these creatures runs the gamut from just hearing noises or tree knocking or the the usual tropes of of Bigfoot encounters to somebody that you spent some time with interviewing that we alluded to earlier in the show that thinks that they can communicate in some fashion, at least physically and and psychically, I guess, with Sasquatch. I guess if you heard it, it, he seems a little out there. (laughs) <laughs> to a lot of people. So what yeah. was that experience like getting, you know, because you're a very rational guy and, and, you know, very open-minded, but you're having to interact with this, with this gentleman. And what was that like? Well, I mean, first of all, any, anytime you find yourself driving deep into the forest with a complete stranger. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. There you is know. that. Yes. You know, yeah. You're, you're hoping they show you something weird that is a Sasquatch, you know, right? Right. Right. Um, right. The individual I spent time with is uh, his name is Brian Bland. He's a public figure now on Facebook and, and um, likes to share his story about his relationship with the Sasquatch family. And I found myself with this individual deep in the mountainous forests of British Columbia. If there's ever a place that you look around and uh, ask yourself, could Bigfoot live here? Yeah. Could a Sasquatch? <laughs> the answer is 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 yes, emphatically. So. Brian has an interesting story. He was walking his dog one day in the foothills of the mountains there, and he began to receive a message in his head. And it was almost a call to him, like a call from the wild, saying, you need to to come up here. You need to spend some time up here. And walking his dog like he did usually every day around that same time in those mountains, uh, he started to discover this unresolved feeling something was incomplete in him that he needed he needed to really find a resolution to so he began going up into the mountains and as he began going up to the mountains he tried to pay attention to what was around him tried to pay attention to what could be calling him up there was there a reason was there a purpose and slowly but surely he started to discover these sticks and stones and moss organized in various sigils, symbols, signs that would repeat throughout his trek through the mountains. So what happened then is that he started to essentially assign some meanings to them. And he didn't know exactly why he was doing this, but there seemed to be a methodology to these, uh, you know, assortments of branches and natural firma that was communicating some sort of message to him. Right. And to to be clear here, these branches had the bark stripped off them. So they were bare, like white wood, because, you know, some people would say, well, you're just seeing patterns in a natural falling of twigs or branches. But he was claiming that these are geometric patterns uh, sticking up like a, like a V or an A 
or an ex, and they, yeah. you know, I think he said that the ex meant friendship is welcome, approach us or whatever, but these were definitely sticks that had been altered by something way out in the middle of nowhere. Had been altered by something way out in the middle of nowhere. He started to confer with his indigenous people's friends, his First Nations friends, and they confirmed that there is, you know, legend ascribed to this phenomenon and that those are from a Sasquatch family communicating to the other people of the forest. And what was interesting about this is that seeing a lot of the symbols and being up in the woods and Brian showing me some of these symbols himself, they do look very pedestrian. They do look as if I could have ran ahead of him right. and, <laughs> uh, and made them real quick, right? Sure. But I, I, I think what his point is, is that he's in deep belief that these are occurring and these are telling him. And he's had other phenomenon that confirms what his beliefs are. And so his context towards it is loaded with essentially additional evidence, you know, additional anecdotal evidence that supports this idea. And what some of those instances were, were visual contact with Sasquatches, with visual contact with uh, some of these individuals that he believed are making these things with him. So he's had numerous experiences that he detailed to me of seeing Sasquatch appear to him in the tree line and then disappear or walk away. He even reported a story to me about playing with a juvenile Sasquatch that's a part of the family and throwing rocks with it back and forth beyond the tree line and having visual contact with his Sasquatch family. So he has that. His friends claim the same thing. And now there is this growing online community on social that essentially supports this idea of wherever they are in the world. And it's a worldly, you know, social community at this point saying like, hey, I'm in the foothills of this mountain range in Russia and I'm experiencing the same thing. And how can I connect to them in a more broader way? And when I asked Brian, well, what are they trying to really say to us? What's the point of all this? Why would they even want to connect with us in this way? And he said, they're using it as a method to help us raise our consciousness. Hmm. That spiritually, they're there to raise our curiosity, to allow us to help us believe in something bigger than us, in something more mysterious, to allow us to be more curious and open, break our hearts open, and accept the strange in this much more specific way to help essentially amplify our curiosity. What else could be possible if this is happening, right? Yeah. So that's that's their sort of spiritual belief in what is in what is occurring to them and, and people all across the world. And that our ability to lean in to this phenomenon, to engage with it, is just an opportunity for that. And these Sasquatch people are providing us the opportunity. There's a really emotional story that he shared with me connecting uh, the Sasquatch family to his own family that I think illustrates the power of what these stories of what these belief systems can really do for us as humans, perhaps, and how they ultimately make Brian and the people that share his beliefs, you know, maybe better people, better citizens, you know, better brothers and sisters. Right. So interesting. That story of Brian Bland and the Sasquatch family and, and the Sasquatch code was just as much a story about the, hum the human element and 
how powerful this phenomena can really be to us if we let it in. Well, that is the other side of it, is that if you do approach acceptance that there is just an unknown primate out in the woods. And, and, you know, to me, that's not such a huge stretch, even though people will say like, well, there's no, there's no physical proof. It's like, well, you got some and it's not been thoroughly analyzed all that much, but in one sense, it's just a physical kind of creature. But the other side of that is like, well, maybe you don't have all this physical proof because there is some kind of paranormal element to its existence. You know, in some way, that's an easy way to say it answers all those questions. But there are a lot of people who have interacted and and claim some kind of uh, sighting or engagement with these creatures and claim that there is a spiritual or paranormal or even supernatural involvement and that there's psychic communication. There is a spiritual element. There is an interdimensional element where they just, I believe, as your guest said, you know, they appear and kind of disappear in front of his eyes. And yeah. at one point he was relaying a story where he was with his friend, and I thought this was fascinating because now it involves shape-shifting and in that he saw this Sasquatch, and he said, he turned to his friend and said, hey, do you see that right there? And he's like, what, that that small dog over there? And yeah. he's like, no, it's a Sasquatch. His friend's like, well, I just see a dog. Well, one, why is a dog out in the middle of nowhere, out in the woods? But also, you know, Brian Bland was saying that, well, then they can appear to different people depending on what they're ready for and what they yeah. want to relay. And that to him, they felt he was he was on his spiritual journey or enlightenment, and, and therefore he was more willing to accept that. His friend was not, not at that yeah. stage. So to him, he appeared as a small dog or a dog, and they appear to different people as different things. But that then goes back to Skinwalker, is that what, yeah. are, what are you actually seeing? And, and the question that, uh, you know, we spoke to... Uh, Linda Godfrey and her book Monsters Monsters Monsters, Monsters the, Among Well, that us. is another book. That is, you can get that's a, a yeah about the monster family. Yes, about yeah. the show. Uh, <laughs> there is another book that she did called Monsters Among Us, and it talks about people trying to pick up stuff on trail cams where they you know left out roadkill, and it got picked up by some kind of animal, but on the trail cam, all that they see is just a white mist. And so, yeah, and then the carcass gets moved behind the veil of the mist on the trail cam. Yeah, pretty fascinating. Mm. So, what do you? What are we really seeing? It goes back to your point earlier. It's like you know, what is it? What reality is it that we're actually seeing, and what are we allowed to see or capable of seeing? So, anyway, it, I, I thought it was very fascinating, and just that kind of take on there, where even most people that I said you know would be willing to maybe buy into some kind of physical creature won't go that far. But then there are a lot of other people who are, well, yeah, you know, it's it's just out there, but the rest of you aren't ready for it. One of the things that you had mentioned to us when we were talking was that you had done an interview with a haunted object and got replies via EVP. Now, I know you know, because we talked about it a little bit, that I had... Uh, particularly poignant experience. Very EV minor. Yeah, very, very minor. EVP experience. Uh, <laughs> not a thing, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was last July. But I'm curious what kind of equipment you use technically and what exactly happened in this uh, particular event. So what's interesting about what, what I do essentially right now is you, you guys have gone further than me in that regard. Aside from documenting the stories of these folks, I don't do really much investigation myself. I don't really own any equipment. I don't really go on ghost hunts or anything like that, unless it's a part of, uh, of, of one of my featured guests. And so I, I, I typically, and on this day, when I interviewed this, this, you know, alleged haunted object was just going in blind. Right. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about this situation 
personally is that I was more terrified about getting an actual response through EVP than not. Because yeah. if I got a response, it's like, well, what else is true? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So where do we go from there? Been there. Yeah. So, so I was with the Newkirks in Cincinnati and I was doing an episode about their relationship to the haunted objects in their traveling museum of the paranormal and the occult. And I wanted to know what it was like to live and really commune with these objects. So Greg has developed quite the rapport with one object in particular that has, uh, has sort of become like their sort of their statement piece. Is or this the crown? That's the, is it the crown? The, the nail in the eyes, which, uh, object. This, this is, uh, it, this is, this is Billy the idol. Oh no, idol. that's something else. Yeah. I'm sorry. We, yeah. we had listened oh. to an episode where they were specifically talking about the weird phenomena happening around that short piece that has the, um, a noose around its neck and the nails yeah. in its eyes and just yes. they oh, yeah. when that was described uh I, I believe it was at a at a showing and somebody had said uh, you know, it was begging them oh come on let's take it out of the box let's i gotta see this you know not believing and that's sometimes can be a dangerous way to go in as we knew from our experience we're like oh come on what is this thing let's see it bring it out and they had really cautioned against it and then they did and about five really awful things happened immediately which go yeah. beyond coincidence. In uh, in episode eight of the first season, they they detail what those experiences were. You know, it, it's interesting. We talked, we've talked so far a lot about what are the implications of engaging with this phenomenon. And sometimes it's beyond discovery, right? Sometimes it's seemingly very physical responses and reactions to to what this all could be and it's not always nice yeah yeah <laughs> you know well yeah that's to some of this right i mean that, that's a callback not to our reaction or our response to the sally house visit was that the guy who really requested for this thing to come out of the box immediately started crying yeah and he, had, he was i'm sorry i didn't believe in this i didn't think anything would happen and then Something did. I mean, there was a there was an injury. There was a damage to uh, the merchandise there at the show. You know what happens is that I think when you go in like that, you're often surprised. Hi, this is Danny, and this is Kendra, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. Why don't you take us back to the story of Billy? Because we had seen that, of course, online and, and some of the videos that they had. But what was your experience then with this? I believe it's an African idol, right? What's interesting is in relationship to the crone, is Billy looked to be an object that was maybe of similar levels of anger and mm -hmm. spite and terror uh, when they first got it. Because the first initial EVPs of Billy were, were horrendous, were him screaming or him yelling. Uh, this thing seemingly was very, very angry about something and was trying to communicate and very frustrated that he couldn't get his message across, perhaps. So, you know, he was donated the new Kirks for essentially safekeeping and maybe even in hopes that um, this issue could be resolved to give like this object maybe some peace. It's a three foot tall wooden African statue. And he had become a really trusted and loved a member of the family. You'll have to listen to that episode in Euphemet to kind of hear Greg's journey because he tells it much better than I can. But Billy essentially sits upon this altar 
in the Newkirk's living room. He's got booze and beads and coins and all sorts of tobacco, you know, all sorts of little offerings. They're offerings from Billy's fans. And, you know, not too dissimilar to how this statue would be treated by the Congolese in Africa, actually. So it's sort of been reconnected with his lineage in this way that, that actually sort of happened naturally at their museums. People started to come up and just, and just give offerings to this thing without even knowing that, you know, it was appropriate that they do so. So with all of that and, and some very harrowing stories that Greg told me, I thought it would, you know, sort of be appropriate to, since he's talking, right, to maybe ask Billy some questions myself. So I asked Greg, can I try and interview him? And he says, you can try. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, if you want. So I go up to the altar and I uh, put some coins in there that I got. And I think I got them when I was in Ireland or something. And so they're a little different. So, you know, I said, hey, these, you know, I brought these back from Ireland for you. Greg goes up and he holds an EVP recorder device next to Billy. And he introduces me to Billy. And I, like I said, I'm nervous. I'm scared because this is another one of those moments where if he talks back, life is different. Re- reality is different <laughs> yes, at that yes. point. I know that so, feeling. So my entire body is buzzing. I could feel like the fillings in my teeth. Like it was just, I was so supercharged seemingly. And so what followed is I asked uh, Billy some pretty rudimentary questions. I tried to keep it light. I was kind of nervous. And we listened back and there was nothing. It was my questions, then silence. So Greg at this point, you know, he takes a beat and then he goes, you know what? Let, Let me try something. Let me try something. So at that point, I had, before he said that, I felt like I kind of dodged a bullet because, you know, okay, that's good. I can continue on with my <laughs> life, state of my belief system. My, life. Yes. my belief system is sake. <laughs> so Greg goes up to Billy and he whispers something in Billy's ear. And then he sets the recorder down at Billy's feet and he leaves and goes and stands on the other end of the room. And so now this thing is on and Greg is gone and it's just me and Billy. And so I take a few really deep breaths and I approach Billy again and I begin to ask more questions. And what was terrifying is that this particular recorder, and I apologies, I have no idea what the name is for it or, or what exactly it is. But when it registers sound, it lets you know with a visual cue that's a little red light. Yes. And when this little red light's on, it is recording something. Right. As I'm asking questions, then stop, the red light comes back on. And so at that moment, from the first question I asked him in that second round of questions, that red light came on every single time after I asked a question. And I said, oh man, (laughs) (laughs) you got something. (laughs) What is this going to be? And sure enough, folks can hear the results of what that is on that, on that episode, episode eight. But how it came back to me is I asked, I asked the following questions and these were the responses that I felt I got. I asked it, do you like Dana and Greg? The response I think I heard was I like Dana and Greg. I asked, who is your favorite cat in the house? I heard Peter. That's one of the Newkirk's cats. Yes. I asked, is there a place you want to go? 
we heard Africa. And I asked, how do you feel? He said, happy. I said, what do you think about this mirror behind you? Knowing that earlier in the day, Greg had told me a story about Billy not liking the faux black obsidian mirror behind him, that they would have to separate them sometimes, that there was some sort of relationship to those. And this, this black obsidian, you know, it, it was faux in the way that they had made it themselves, yeah, but not faux in the way of the, the interaction that they would get. Dana would walk by sometimes at night, not seeing her own reflection, standing at an angle where she would not see her own reflection, see a reflection of someone else in this mirror behind Billy. So <laughs> Billy responds by, it's a bad mirror. I ask him, <laughs> wow. yeah. do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? He says, bad. And I say, what do you want us to learn? And he says, I am not bad. And I'm, my, my skin is like just, it, it, I got goosebumps right now. Because if, if folks go and listen to those clips, listen, there is something called pareidolia, right? Yes, sure. Yeah. Where, There's like an sure audio. Was, yes, we talked about this in our Sally series extensively. And yeah. then, of course, Absolutely. that's been uh, debated and debunked by, by some as not Absolutely. being everything. But yeah, you, yeah. we know what you see, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I honestly don't know what I think about EVPs. Yeah. I'm sent a lot of them. Sure. Right. And uh, whether that's through the form of one of these standard EVP recorders or something like a spirit box, I don't know what I think about any of it really. But for the answers to come back and to be so pointed seemingly. Yeah. That was startling to me. And it was one of those moments where it was a paradigm shift once again. And it was one of another one of those moments where Greg looked at me afterwards and just said, told you so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's pretty amazing. And I just want to say for people who are listening to our show that maybe haven't heard your show or haven't heard earlier episodes of our own show, I want to make this clear. When you're getting an EVP like that and when you were talking to Billy and you were seeing the red light on the recorder in the room, you're not hearing anything. You have to play it back to hear what's being recorded. But the recorder is somehow picking up audio that is not being heard out loud in the room. Yeah, correct. Right. Hearing your recordings earlier today and your responses to them, it lends itself to, to this general belief I have about any sort of divination technique, really. I mean, I almost believe that whether, whether it's a real phenomenon or not, real in quotation marks, right? Mm -hmm. um, it almost doesn't matter to me. Personally, it doesn't matter because... Whatever that response is, it's doing something very similar to what Brian Bland says the Sasquatch code does and the Sasquatch communication does. It, it, it makes us more connected and curious to these things and makes us question our own beliefs. And it makes us be, it gives us awareness of what our beliefs may even be. Because listen, like a lot of us believe a lot of stuff and we never even question it. We never give a second thought about why we stand for certain things. And is it something that we were just brought into? Is it something, is it, is it the way we were raised or these things that we were programmed? You know, taking it even deeper, is this the effect of some trauma from a past life? Whatever it may be, you know, a lot of us don't think about why we think certain things. And I think at the end of the day, at least this allows us a chance to evaluate our thoughts and our feelings and what we believe. So you feel like this, this 
gathering this kind of evidence, whether it's an EVP or the Sasquatch code or whatever, this is more of an invitation to, from somewhere, from something, to take part in a spiritual journey of some kind, as opposed to the idea, which I think a, you know, a lot of investigators might have, of there I have hard and fast proof. It's not about that at all. It's more about how it affects your approach and your thought processes. Um, I mean, I think it could be both, right? right? I mean, I think that it could be a real phenomenon that you're talking to something else, whether it be haunted or on a different plane or, or whatever it may be, an alien, like whatever it may be, whatever someone thinks they're trying to divine, right? It could be that. But at the end of the day, whether it is or not, maybe it is allowing us to, to just keep more of an open mind. Maybe at the end of the day, whether or not that's an angel or that's just interference by some, you know, a nearby AM radio station, right? Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, whatever that may be, it's still allowing for that moment of disbelief, that moment of suspended reality, where even the most uh, stoic skeptic can take a second look, you know, even if for just a second, that second of disbelief. Like, is that real? I can't believe that's not real. You know, um, what, what does that mean? That taps into something very deep and emotional for human beings. And I think it taps into a place of us reinvestigating our own narrative and to live in a society and to grow as people and to grow as a person, as an individual, some self-reflection, I think, is not always a bad thing, right? Right, right. <laughs> but, well, but on the converse, it could be both, you know, it could, yeah. I always think that there's there's two messages meant for two audiences when these come through and and yeah people will say well that's just some static like I don't I don't hear that but getting back to the sasquatch appearing as a sasquatch or a dog or whatever or and then we're hopefully going to get to talk about skinwalkers here in a little bit whatever you see that's a message it's a twofold message first and primarily as getting back to hellier as well it's a message for the receiver of that message and a very personal one meant for them only really and that you hear what you needed to hear what you're ready for and it goes we were talking to uh, rich adam about the near-death experience and why seemingly decent people have a horrible one that they come back mm. and report and it's like you know and we got kind of a discussion didn't make it on air because i recently listened back to it it's like well we're hotly debating. It's like, well, how can you say a person deserves a bad experience or deserves a, a hellish, uh, horrifying experience when they weren't really that terrible of a person? It's like, well, whatever that is or was, that's what they needed to hear and experience or see. And yeah. it was meant for them. And the the outer greater message with these kinds of things is that it's a message and maybe a wake-up call or just a bell that says, look over here for a second, that there's something greater than what we're all experiencing at the moment. And that's the secondary message, but not everybody gets that. So yeah. it's a very personal thing. And so, yeah, I, I think with the EVP, like with you, that's a, you know, again, it's like, it, it could be random, but you have to take the context or I do into consideration that the context and the coincidence, the seeming, you know, something that goes beyond coincidence because everything at some point will go beyond coincidence. Yeah. And getting to our next topic here, when you know you covered the Mothman story as as we did, and you go to West Virginia, and it's like that's a weird experience to everybody. And some people think, oh my gosh, that you know, Indrid Cold, that was he was a harbinger of doom. And 
to Woody Derenberger, it wasn't quite as much. It was a message and a communication, yeah. but people take it very differently depending on who you are. So what did you find in your investigations there in in West Virginia and and dealing with Mothman and Men in Black and Injured Cold and overall John Keel? I never thought I'd spend as much time in West Virginia as I did for this project. <laughs> yeah. It kept pulling me back. I, I, I went two separate times. I never thought I'd go once, but it just so happened that the Newkirks had a relationship with the place. And I wanted to take advantage of that in terms of just telling a story. Point Pleasant is a character within their lives that essentially acts as a indication of a milestone happening both in their professional and personal lives. Hmm. And so as I was doing this feature about their relationship and how they, how they essentially, they, they're this loving married couple that lives with the paranormal every single day, there's no separation, that a place like Point Pleasant, well, of course, that's a milestone location, right? Because as anyone is familiar with Keel's work or with paranormal cryptids like Mothman, you, you can't separate that phenomenon seemingly from the place. Um, it goes very hand in hand. And what's interesting about that is that the phenomenon is so varied there and ties into so, I mean, a place like Point Pleasant is a spot where, you know, it begs the question, is there some sort of universal spookiness law happening here right is this an, <laughs> well, you this do example? wonder about it yeah you know. yeah it's got guys like john keel and jack Vallee, like them thinking in these terms of is there something universal happening here is this phenomena more similar than dissimilar and phenomena as in cryptids and ufos and psychic abilities and even things that border on more conspiratorial aspects like the men in black right what is the relationship these seemingly have together. And then when you top that with a healthy dose of synchronicity, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and paranoia in, in that regard, it really is a location that I didn't know I had to go there until after I went there. Mm. And it informed me, I think, personally, with a lot of notions about what all this could mean. And I think some folks will go there and, and, and become hardened by it a little bit. This is a place of great anecdotal evidence of these things happening and some significant horrific tragedies. I'm sure you guys, your listeners are probably familiar with that story of the Mothman and, and what that entailed. But you look at, you know, just down the street is the Flatwoods Monster. Right, right. right. And, and Old Braxy <laughs> right. is, is the nickname of that creature. And you're looking at a, a sighting of this alien-like being that's reported in this uh, rural community that I feel doesn't get enough respect, doesn't get enough attention sometimes in a serious way because it's in the South, right? And it's very similar to reports of things like the Hopkinsville case, if you look at it. I think, in, in my opinion, if you replace Braxy, the Flatwoods monster, with a goblin-like creature, and maybe take the UFO out of the equation and replace it with a cave or something. You're essentially looking at that same archetype experience, right? right. And you could say that with uh, some of the reports of the Mothman as well, right? For whatever reason, I don't know if you guys have experienced this yet or not, but dogs seem very ever-present in a lot of these narratives. Yes. The, the yeah. dog's always dying. The dog's always 
There's always a dog somewhere. We have actually even joked about that. We a little bit with the Delphus ring because oh. of the snowball, the dog we talked about. Which... Right, the blue healers. Uh, oh, yeah, the blue in healers the Skinwalker, Skinwalker yeah. yeah, that disappeared and sometimes they come back goo. Yeah, yeah the ones that seem to make it are the ones that get scared and then they sense something that the people aren't and they go cower somewhere under the kitchen table or, or go hide but yeah. dogs in their nature is to go confront a threat to their territory and they can't help themselves and those ones either end up disappearing or turn into something else or yeah there is a especially if you go to ufo lore there's yeah. a fascination with the the aliens, you could say, a fascination they have with animals and especially dogs. And like, how do they relate to us? Because we're so close to them. Right. Maury Island incident. Yeah. You know, right. first death involves in that, a dog. Right. <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah. You know, um, I, I just know that I, I'm trying to keep my dog as far away from this phenomenon as possible. <laughs> yeah. Was just a little, a little dicey. But, you know, I, I've had interesting experiences seemingly with animals and, and, and my relationship maybe personally with some of this phenomenon and animals and what they may tell us about this phenomenon because you're looking at a conscious creature that has a different relationship with what consciousness even is, right? Yeah. And so what does that mean? Like just in terms of the mechanics of that, even the uh, physiology behind what their relationship is to our 3D environment and what our reality is. And so is it trying to tell us something? about our connection to that is, is interesting, but sorry, a little bit of a sidetrack there, but, uh, (laughs) you know, so, so we went deep out into the TNT area just outside of Point Pleasant where the first Mothman sighting occurred and where several subsequential sightings occurred. And, and again, what happened with me is that as we investigated the TNT bunkers and looked up into the sky, you know, in, in case of any sort of reemergence of this mystical beast, because what great tape that would be, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the human element was the scariest part of that journey, though. You know, John Keel calls them trigger-happy heroes. And uh, <laughs> yeah. on the other side of this little um, mossy inlet uh, were people target practicing or firing guns or hunting but um talking you know automatic weaponry out in the woods yeah uh, that was concealed to us so the opportunity for stray bullets (laughs) yes is higher (laughs) than you'd like it to be yeah 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 so so that was uh that was my discourse with that with that situation but again the precursory elements of of uh, investigating that story with those individuals led me back to West Virginia and led me back to the Flatwoods area and to Sutton. And in Sutton, there was an opportunity to talk with a man who essentially, I think, could stand in for a lot of other folks in that area and in rural areas all across the globe that really can't, because of the social constructs set forth, really can't embrace like perhaps a a power or an interest in the paranormal or the mystical because the pressure is there that hey you don't talk about that stuff or hey that's evil that's demonic you know you can't do that so i had an opportunity with greg to visit this guy named wes wes's family owned this uh dilapidated motel in what was essentially at one time the archetype of main street america And uh, this old hotel was in disrepair and three stories of empty rooms and creaky floorboards. 
And it was at this point that he was displaying a relationship with uh, alleged spirits that were in walking amongst us in this foyer in, in this hotel. And he described seeing and interacting with this tall cowboy-like figure, uh, this woman, perhaps a dead baby, and seeing and talking and engaging with these folks right before our eyes, never having really embraced this level of potential psychic ability or mediumship that he was showing. Whatever the case may be, what was happening was his truth. And that was apparent. I didn't get the impression, I didn't feel that I was dealing with a charlatan, but a very emotional connection to this place and these, these abilities, and almost a relief of being able to release and, and describe what was stuck with inside him, because you can't tell other people about this stuff, right? So as he described this, he took us into some extremely dark empty hallways yeah we would feel the cold you know rushing past our you know goosebumps like crazy um walking past these empty like open doorways to empty dark rooms um it it, it was at face value frightening just because of the unknown of it right and being in a dark confined structure when someone is saying like hey up ahead this woman covered in blood is like coming towards us. Mm. It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't really set the tone of comfort. No, definitely. Uh, at, at that point in time, <laughs> we pull him after his interaction and, and Greg and I talking him through his relationship to this and, and Greg mentioning, you know, I, well, I think, you know, Wes, you're a medium, you know, you're, you're displaying uh, an insight and a relationship with this phenomenon that is, is what I see with professional mediums in haunted locations all over the world. So I had enough of it at that point, and I pulled <laughs> everyone out of that hallway, right? Yeah. Uh, to the single source of light in that entire building, which was just this small 60-watt table lamp in the middle of the foyer. And Greg is continuing to sort of break down what, what Wes is seeing and, and how this affects his life. And, and I'm recording the entire thing for the episode. And uh, as they're talking, I'm looking around at the, you know, sort of the darkness um, that surrounds us. It was almost, you know, very similar to, to being out in the wilderness and that single campfire illuminating your surroundings. But the shadows are, are so deep and so long and resilient to any sort of uh, uh, to visual information coming at you. Yeah. And as I look past uh, Wes's shoulder to this particularly active location in this hotel, this empty doorway of this room that Wes really didn't want to go into earlier in the night, at the same location where earlier he had a conversation in that doorway with a six-foot-tall, you know, man who was – irate, was angry at the state of this hotel, the state of disrepair it was in. Mm, wow. In that hallway emerged, to my own eyes, a translucent bust, perhaps, of a man. Really? That was about six feet up in the air. Uh-huh. That was the general shape and structure of a head, shoulders, chest, the beginning of a torso and this thing that appeared to be the bust of a man floated through the hallway to that door into that room that was so hard for Wes to, Wes to go into. 
And that was the first time that I had any experience visually with something so startling and something as on the nose yeah. as that, yeah. you know, you don't, you don't, you, you don't expect to go into, well, some people do, but you don't expect to go into a Honda location and see Casper, right. To see like <laughs> right. something out of the ghostbusters, but it was in fact, so similar to something that you would see in a Hollywood production that I couldn't tell anyone about it for months and months and months. Yeah. I didn't tell anyone about it. Yeah. I kept it to myself. And it wasn't until this last episode of Euphemet, it was Euphemet of Ascira episode four, uh-huh. in which are essentially B-sides, extra content yes. for what's collected in the season. It was then when I called Greg up and told him for the first time what I experienced. I said, man, I didn't tell you this, but I think I saw a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and his response was like, why'd you wait so long to tell me? <laughs> like, you talk to so many people, you have so many experiences, like, and, and a lot of them are like, you talk to a lot of people that have a lot more crazy stuff going on than just seeing a ghost one time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But to me, coming in, trying to be a journalist, right? Trying to be a documentarian, trying to tell the stories of others before my own and trying to do it in a measured way that's not going to turn off a lot of folks that is about the story and not necessarily the phenomenon. This was a situation that made me fear what other people would think about me. If people knew that this documentarian thinks he sees ghosts now, what does that mean? What does that say about me? And so what I finally was allowed to get a real taste of was the emotion and the feeling that the people that are on my show have. Yes. I got to feel what a piece of what it was like to live in a, you know, small West Virginia coal town and not be able to share what I experienced because I, I was so scared about what people would think about me at that point and what it would do to the work too. Well, it's something we consider as well yeah, uh, about and- what you reveal to people because there are some that just aren't, going to have it. And yeah, we rely on our audience generally accepting of the stuff we present, whether no matter what we believe, we present it out there and and say, okay, you don't have to agree with us, but here's what we found and make up your own mind. But yeah, we, it's something that we consider as well. Yeah. And I I went through a very similar feeling with regard to the Sally house experience and then sharing the EVP, which obviously everyone can hear, like you saw something you don't have it on tape, you don't get to share that. So it's just, you've literally become that witness that had a personal experience. And all you can do is say, I saw this, and now you're the one that's trying to, or maybe you don't care, but you're you're in the position of conveying to other people what your personal experience was, and then you're suddenly realizing that your personal experience is as hard to convey as, as that of, the, of guests on your show, which is the same thing that happened with me with the EVP, because everyone could hear the EVP, but what I couldn't relate was how I felt when I heard it and how yeah. how personal it felt to me after having said, hey, if you want to leave a message, and then that's what I got. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And then suddenly the tables have turned. And the, and the thing is, I you know, we've heard several episodes of your show. I haven't heard them all. And I, so I don't know if you ever said anything like this. But one of the things that I stupidly said when we started, and we kind of both did, was, well, nothing's <laughs> ever happened to us. Something, hopefully someday something, well, that's why we're starting this show. And then so now the, you know, what I got in exchange for that was file 10, which you heard. 
And so then I was, why did I want this to happen? I can't remember that now. But there's still a part of me that is very curious to see something like what you saw. And, and so now I, I haven't learned my lesson from the EVP we got. I would be very interested in seeing something like that. But c conversely, I'm still shell-shocked. Forrest later this year is going to Waverly, you know, with some friends of ours for a lockdown investigation. And, and now that he's announced it, I guess I have to You go. have to. That's yeah. right. I'm not going, though. <laughs> I'm not going. And I'm not quite ready, even though the thing that happened to me is uh, almost exactly a year ago at this point. I'm not ready for a lockdown at a place that has such prominent activity, you know? Yeah. It's interesting to try to learn from that right like what it says about us as individuals right right and, and um i mean listen like mystics would say that it's a process of integration right if you talk to a non-dual kabbalist or someone of that ilk a shaman perhaps you know it's it's this life is this constant integration process and that things you experience you don't know what it means and maybe it doesn't mean anything but you just kind of live with it and you kind of go from there and you actually you try not to expose or expound too many expectations on what the phenomenon is. If it's trying to say something, then it will at some point in time. You know, mystics would, would I think they'd say that there's some sort of co-creation at play in those regards. Right. And that it's implicit to us, for us to just go with the flow in regards to some of this material and, and not to really take it too serious even well if, if i can say that and i'm even having just now i'm having this realization about the different there's a difference in me from before we you know we had our sally house experience and after where when you relayed the story about the evp from the haunted object and with with greg and all of that and you were like i don't remember what kind of recorder it was but there was a red light on it the before i got an evp or we got an evp version of Scott would have been like, well, let's find what kind of record was it a digital or was it analog? The after you've gotten the EVP, I'm like, yeah, this is a great story. I don't care. Like, I believe it. You know, like, I'm like, <laughs> I don't need to know what kind of deck it was or whatever. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I've gotten past that part of it. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of uh, spirit trans communication. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 That's the term, right? I mean, yeah. Hello everyone, I'm John Eddie Jr. And this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. I'm particularly interested in the, or we both are, in the Estes Method, which mm. um, I had, I guess, came into play at the Stanley because it's in Estes Park and that's why it's called that. Yeah. For people that haven't seen Hellier, I was wondering if you might describe a little bit how it works and then maybe talk about your personal experiences with it. The Estes Method was developed by Carl Pfeiffer and Connor Randall at the Stanley Hotel. They had the opportunity to be the resident ghost investigators there and led tours, which led them to leading their own personal investigations until the odd hours of the morning for nearly five years, if not longer. A lot of people know about the Stanley Hotel just because of its relationship to The Shining. And uh, Stephen King had, have you guys ever covered like Stephen King's own sighting that occurred no. there or experience that occurred no, there? No, I feel yeah. like I've read about it, but we've never mentioned it on the air. I have it right here if you, yeah. if I can read it real quick. Yeah, let's hear it. It's kind of interesting and it sets the table. So he writes that in late September of 74, Tabby, which was his wife at the time, and I spent a night 
at a grand old hotel in Estes Park, the Stanley. We were the only guests, as it turned out. The following day, they were going to close the place down for the winter. Wandering through its corridors, I thought it seemed the perfect, maybe the archetypical setting for a ghost story. That night, I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over, within an inch of falling out of the bed. I got up, lit a cigarette, sat in the chair, looking out the window at the Rockies, and by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of the book firmly set in my mind. Wow. So that was his relationship with it, is he had a dream. Yeah, well. (laughs) And it was a dream that placed him in that place with anomalous activity. And sometimes that's all it takes, I guess, to uh, inspire us to manifest certain things. But, you know, everything he said is true when walking in that place. You can imagine yourself being chased by ghostly fire hoses. You have this historic mansion in this epic setting. And it really is like sort of the quintessential setting for any haunted hotel movie ever. So there's that. It's charged, right? Like every archetype that we expect is there. And so to be in this place that has essentially real phenomenon, seemingly real phenomena happening, was the perfect place for Connor and Carl to, to really move into, to really bootstrap and develop this, this new divination technique. And what it is, long story short, there's a thing called a spirit box. And your listeners are probably familiar with it, but the spirit box is essentially very close to like a radio with a broken tuner, essentially. That's a good uh, way to describe it. It it seeks and seeks and seeks. And in this rhythmic way, it picks up bits and pieces in certain forms of audio. Sometimes it's uh, a blip. Sometimes it is seemingly full sentences and full words and full expressions. To be clear, these words are are collected sort of randomly in a police scanner kind of way from various terrestrial broadcasts, generally. That's right. Yeah. The typical method of using this uh, for a long time, once this was uh, once this was developed, which it wasn't developed by Connor and Carl, was, I have no idea of the history of it and who developed it at that There's point. There's a guy... Frank's box. Frank's box. Yeah. Yes. But he was guy. he was trying to communicate with aliens. Yes, he was. But <laughs> he he actually and when he started, he gave the plans out and everything. He was like anybody can build one or whatever. But that's that's where they started. Just interesting. Yeah. All right. I have go. to look him up. Yeah. But it was typical for folks to like set that on a table, right, and turn it on and sit around and ask questions to it and try to get very similar to an uh, EVP session. You'd be asking questions, except this spirit box would give you automatic responses. It would seemingly maybe communicate right on the spot. What that did was that left a little bit more open to things like pareidolia, things like maybe reading into or hearing into certain things. And it, it led to a lot of influence being subjected into the experiment. So Connor and Carl go, well, is there a way we can make this more intimate, more direct, and a little bit more controlled? And can we cut off some of that intermediary? So what happened then is they decided to get a pair of uh, noise-canceling headphones and a blindfold and use those and integrate that in the spirit box into this process, into this experiment. And what it essentially does is one guy will hook those headphones up to that spirit box and put them on listen to it at full volume, put a blindfold on so that the only thing that they're experiencing, their visuals are cut off. They're only hearing what's coming through that receiver. The individual on the outside of them 
can then project the queries, can then ask the questions, but the receiver is not hearing any of those. So essentially it's whatever they're picking up, whatever the listener is picking up on, they'll just say it. It's incorporating a blind component to the, to the experiment itself. Yeah, literally. Yeah, Yeah. literally, but because you're removing the relationship between what the person is hearing from the spirit box and the questions that are being asked by another party. Yes, absolutely. And for more information on this too, Greg Newkirk actually wrote an excellent piece at Week and Weird, and maybe I can even send you some... Yeah, send us the link. We'll put it in the show notes with this episode. Yeah. Connor Randall essentially became kind of the go-to guy to listen to, and Connor Randall, people will know him from Hellier season one yes. as well. They hooked Connor up to a pair of these headphones, sat him down in the concert hall's basement, which had experienced increased activity. And while Connor sat quietly, eyes closed, listening to the direct feed, Carl began to ask questions, pointed at the ghost in the Stanley, and Randall began to spit out the answers. And they actually made sense. And they were seemingly real replies. You know, and that was before they even added the blindfold. That was when they had just introduced the headphones to the equation. So all this leads up to them having multiple hundreds and hundreds of these experiments together. And sometimes, allegedly, even having conversations that had lasted up to an hour of documented conversations through this method. So here we are. (laughs) I'm in Estes Park. I'm at the Stanley. I'm doing a feature on these two gentlemen. And we're on my room on the fourth floor. And the fourth floor is allegedly the most active. It's when the hotel was in operation. It's where all the service people stayed when it was originally transferred into a, a, into a resort. Anyone will tell you it's, it's sort of the most active floor on there. I had already been taken through the dark corridors, had all the goosebumps. We went to my hotel uh, room to perform the Estes method. So as Carl began to ask the questions, Connor began saying whatever words popped up in the scan. And being that these two have conducted conversations, in-depth discussions, they weren't really surprised for what they were finding that night. But to me, as a first-time observer, it was pretty jarring. To, yeah, <laughs> to yeah I imagine. Yeah. You know, I'm standing next to Carl with my recording equipment in hand, and uh, Connor asks, Jim, are you recording? Jim, is that you? Hello? Like... Wait, These this, were the, the things. This, this is what he's repeating after uh, yes. being... <laughs> the, yes. So this is the audio bits that he is hearing, but yes. while being blindfolded and having noise-canceling headphones on. Correct. Wow. Mm. So to me, that felt like a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and it's context. I do remember thinking to myself, well, it's very odd that these two weren't impressed with what happened tonight. Because to me, as a fairly a pedestrian at that point it was very alarming and i also realized that at some point in the night they would have to leave and i'd have to sleep in this room uh... (laughs) did anything else happen that night to you it didn't you know this is like very geeky and i don't know if i've ever shared this before on any certainly not my own podcast and, and probably not publicly but there's a little bit of a ritual that i do there's several rituals that i do when i go out and tape euphemet Um, sometimes I'll be out on the road for as long as three and a half weeks out on the road, various cities, various hotels, 
and I'll do something before I go to bed if it's a particularly active day, right? In terms of phenomenon. I got to tell you, like I'm, I'm working on writing something because similar to Keel, not comparing myself in any regards to Keel, but similar to Keel, these things follow you, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'll be able to share those in some sort of concise way at some point in time. It can make one, if not paranoid, a little superstitious. Yes. And I try to have fun with it. Like I try to keep it within the bounds of one foot in, one foot out. Right. Yeah, yeah. And if it's a particularly active day, I'll go like, hey, listen, anyone who may be in this room with me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I'm doing my best, my earnest best to tell this story. And my intent is, you know, not to trivialize it. I'm trying to be tasteful in the way that I'm telling the story and I'm not exposing any judgment upon you or, you know, this phenomenon or whatever your experience is. So in order to do that, like I really need to sleep. <laughs> so yeah, so I get it, but just you know, I might have to yeah, borrow this from you. Hours. Yeah, that, uh, I think, no, you know, I, I say that as well. That's my attitude. It's that you know, I always say it, I'm not scared of the idea, but I need to sleep. It's I don't yeah. need. Any, it doesn't matter what it is or where they're from, but there's a, a black-hatted man in the in the corner. It's a little hard <laughs> to nod off again. <laughs> <laughs> on the flip side of that, so many people have reached out to us since we did a show on uh, the shadow people where that exactly happens. They see this weird thing. It's like, yeah, and then I just went back to sleep. Like, what? And, and that's part of the phenomenon a lot of the times. Yeah. Yeah. It, is a, it is a big part of the phenomenon. And what's even more startling is uh, in the upcoming season of Euphemet, which uh, starts on June 11th, is the first episode of season two. Deeper in the season, I feature an alien abductee. Oh, and nice. it's the first time that I've had direct experience with, um, well, I'll take that back. It's probably not the first time I've had direct experience with an abductee, but it's the first time that I've gone and try to experience what their life is really like and really connect emotionally to what this phenomenon could mean, both in this sort of reality and, and, and perhaps others, right? And one of the things that was imparted on me is that there is a willingness disengagement that can occur to abductees even, that the presence of these beings somehow are mundane, at some point in time, not just to those that are uh, the abductors, but to those that are closest to them. Right. And so there's some very fascinating stories that all she shares that is a part of her experience that I can't detail now, yeah, but sure. it is very close to what you, you just mentioned about shadow people and people's relationship with that and, and our ability to go like, oh, that's wild. I just went back to sleep. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, the thing about the, the Estes method that is intriguing to me too, it's funny. Like I said, I've, I've moved past trying to figure out how the actual EVP works, but then when it comes to the spirit box and the idea that the nature of the communication is predicated on a cloud of available communication that's, that's been created by humans, and so what it's doing is tapping out a message from that cloud rather than generating a message. So it's like it, it can't generate the message itself, but what it can do is specify a message to you based on things that are already extant. And that's what's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. It's kind of like 
knocking on the hull of a sunken ship to let the sailors inside, you know, to get something communicated to them. You know, it's just, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's really fascinating to me how that works, that whole phenomenon, which I did not take super seriously until the last probably two years or so. The other thing that's really interesting too is that um, we're good friends with the head of tourism for Atchison, Kansas, where the Sally House is, and she had described an Estes method experiment that took place there with Greg and Dana that she said was just unbelievable. Not only was the other participant, and I don't know who was there because she just kind of sent us a, a message saying, we did this. It was unbelievable. I was there. So I, it could have been Connor for all I know that was there or Connor and Carl, but w- whatever happened, they they recorded something there. And she said that the person who was blindfolded with the headphones on was not even in the same room. They were mm. in another room in the house. And she said that she was blown away by whatever those results were. So next yeah. time you talk to Greg, tell him I'm dying to hear them myself. Yeah. I believe uh, that they <laughs> but, did do an event there uh, yeah. a few months ago. So it, it very likely was, uh, was them or something something connected to that? I just want to see. I want to see the the results of that. You yeah. know what was said, what was asked, and what was said. Having had you know personal reaction there, but anyway. So, thank you for telling us about that. It's uh, it's really <laughs> fascinating stuff. You know, my question here, I want to ask you is, what do you think about that idea then of this veil? When you say trans communication, you're crossing into something. Are there different types of barriers? shall we say, because you had an experience where I believe you were in Red Rock or you climbed a Red Rock in Arizona with Peter Gersten, who was going to show you a vortex or what he believed to be a kind of a spiritual or energy portal. What was that like? So it was very interesting spending time with Peter Gersten, first of all, because being a big fan of Coast to Coast AM back in Mm -hmm. the day, to get to spend time with actually one of those guys, one of those guests. Yeah. It's the UFO lawyer. Yeah, Peter the Gersten. lawyer. Like, yeah. Well, like, like the, the coolest thing. I, I couldn't even imagine that, that I was doing this. My, uh, my 12-year-old self was uh, giving me all the high fives. So it was interesting to me to um, watch his progression and his transformation over the years from a hardline UFO attorney that was filing FOIA requests to get all this information and and battling for disclosure and some sort of confirmation about the uh, something else, about something else being there. And then at some point, it turned internal. And he decided, or he felt, or he believed that he could just look inside himself to see that there was more. And how that sort of transmuted to him was that he believes that we live in a simulation and the simulation is like kind of like a video game. And we all live within our own video game and we're our own avatars and that there are games. And that to him explains UFOs and the trickster like phenomenon that that surrounds the paranormal is that it's all part of this game that's been programmed for us to play. So with that being said, he was called to move to Sedona and he didn't know why, but it was all a part of what his game was supposed to be. And his game was told to him through various synchronicities and signs and messages in which he describes in the episode that I did with him, which is, uh, I think it's episode number five of season one called Vortex Jumper. He was called to be in Sedona, which is this historically rich area known for millennia 
from indigenous peoples as being this spiritual hotspot, you know, the home to several vortexes. These vortexes exude these different types of energies based upon what the rock formations is there. Of course, Southern Arizona, home to uh, red rock mountain ranges and, and these incredible stone surfaces. And each stone surface carries its own energy. A feminine energy is over here, a, a more female energy. And these are energies ascribed to them through, of course, lore from indigenous people, but also the mystical community, channelers, things of this nature that have ascribed value and a different context to what this energy may mean. So Peter was there to deal with Bell Rock. Bell Rock has this vortex that he believed that his story was telling him that would open for him if he achieved certain goals. And these goals were he was supposed to lead a certain amount of people to the top of Bell Rock by a certain date to then unlock this vortex opening. And then once in jumping into the vortex, he would have access to the inner workings of the game. And it goes deeper in terms of what Peter's beliefs are is that his purpose is to actually go inside and eliminate a virus that exists within our game. Now, I know people are like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is getting very deep I, very quickly. Right. It's also uh, very, Ready Player One. Ready Player One. <laughs> it's also Neo in the Matrix. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's the yeah. Matrix. You yeah. know, it's the Matrix for sure. So that is totally his belief system and that this location is hypercharged enough to allow him access to really what the greater reality really is, right? Okay. And I think that's not too dissimilar to what some of these other paranormal hotspots tell us right. about what maybe the nature of reality is. You mentioned the Skinwalker Ranch. This is one of those places. You talk about the Appalachians, right? In areas of West Virginia and Kentucky, places that Native Americans for millennia, indigenous peoples, have claimed their spiritual prowess, have claimed that there's something else going on there that lets us tap into or activate a much broader connection spiritually to this other plane of existence. And so I think with Peter, when I was climbing this red rock mountain, I'm mm. not a climber. <laughs> I climbed this red rock mountain with him. Uh, it was the only way he was going to give me an interview. Yeah, I remember uh, you saying in that episode, you were like, um, I'm not even hiking right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. In, and then he was like, "It's sixty feet. It's more. It's more in your mind. Or six? No, six hundred feet. Excuse me. Right? Or was it six? Yeah. Yeah. It's more a mental thing than a physical thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I was like, yeah, you know, uh, no, this is a physical thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a hundred degrees. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, we're talking about. 10 feet at times, 10 feet of sheer, you know, sort of vertical mass. You're yeah. supposed to climb, you know, between the cracks and kind of scale up like your Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible or yes, something. Yes. Um, it, it is imposing. And uh, if anything, a metaphor, right, for, right. for what some of this stuff uh, kind of means. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit for that story. Um, admittedly, it was a time where I had an assistant producer and, she, and they were able to get up. They got to the top, which was awesome. 
I threw in the towel. I said, listen, <laughs> I made it to a certain level. There were, there was some sheer cliff faces that I was just not ready to tackle and that were not worth the story at yeah. that point. You know, I said, listen, maybe this is what the universe wanted me to sit on this ledge down here. <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. That's uh, that's like climbing the stairs of a 60 story building with the implications that if you fall backwards, you're dead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Th- there's that. Sure. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah Cause and then there was also, uh, I remember also in that episode the mention of the the one foot gap that people wouldn't cross at the top. The, yeah, the crack. Right. Yeah, the dreaded gap, which is certainly uh, you know I believe Peter uh, believes is a metaphor in its own as well. Right. So, what's fascinating to me is you know we talked a little bit about forms of divination and transcommunication and locations seemingly can can play a character in that process just as much as any divination technique itself, right? And I think that's what we're seeing with some of this. I think that when you look at the Skinwalker Ranch and places like Sedona and and places in the Pacific Northwest, like Iseti Ranch in the Pacific Northwest, which I've I've been to a, a few times as well. well I haven't heard know, of that one. What is what how do you spell that? Uh, it's spelled E C E T I. And it's like Skinwalker? Some would say. Okay. Um Here's the thing about East City Ranch is that, again, it, it provided a opportunity to um, be a complete paradigm shifter for me as well, personally. Uh-huh. But public facing, this is a campground that is uh, privately owned by this sort of UFO guru, James Gilliland. And if you search for that man's name, he'll be in all sorts of appearances on Coast to Coast AM. And, yeah, I know his you know, name already, actually. And everything else. And, yeah, yeah. You know, very big proponent of uh, star families and okay. uh, uh, channeling with uh, extraterrestrials. And it all stems from his relationship to that piece of land and being called to do something with it, to purchase it, to work the land, to uh, be its caregiver based upon his relationships that then would form with these extraterrestrials. So what's cool about East City Ranch is that he opens it up to the public and you can reserve a camp space there like a KOA or whatever else, just wow. online, reserve your space. Yeah. And what happens there is that sitting, it sits in, the, in this valley and the foothills of Mount Adams, which is one of the larger volcanic mountains in the Pacific Northwest and yeah. the Cascade yeah. Mountain chain. And also, you know, very close to Kenneth Arnold's Sighting yeah, and, uh, sighting and everything sure, else. Sure. What happens there is is predominantly anomalous light activity every single night in abundance, and I can confirm that to be the truth in terms of what you experience. Yeah. You go out there with expectations that are measured as they should be when investigating stuff, and it completely blows your mind in terms of what you see at night. Um, For example, you see lights gingerly flying towards the mountain that will uh, do all sorts of dives, shifts in directions at a moment's notice, power-ups disappear and then reappear, uh, form into geometric shapes with with other moving lights. You name it in terms of what the more popular uh, anomalous light activity is, uh, you'll see it there. And uh, these are occurrences that generally happen every night there. So (laughs) once you go there and you experience that and you experience the mountain glowing with certain lights and lights seemingly going into the top of the mountain, reemerging from the other side, et cetera, 
you start to go, what is really going on here? They have all sorts of technology available that spots what satellites are, uh, what flights are, are happening. They have all sorts of like infrared and night vision that you can wear. And you have James himself. So James will come out into the field like some sort of modern Buddha. And he'll go, I'm getting a message that there's going to be a mothership com- coming over the field here in a few minutes. Or, and then as he's finishing his thought, one of the starkest lights deep, deep, deep in the sky will appear above your head fly over you and then disappear. And uh, I had that experience with him personally. And you go, what else is possible? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What is going on here? And so, you know, what's interesting is that it seems like a theme of our conversation here tonight that he uses that as a way to introduce this phenomenon to individuals so they can deeper understand a more spiritual nature and their connection to what this stuff could be. So whether that is table tipping in the upstairs room to communicate with not only uh, alien energy, but angelic energy, which is a thing they do there, or it's meditative walks through simulations of star systems to reveal who your star family may be right? For me, this is way out stuff. Yeah. It's way out there. And I think for most it is. Yeah. I would say that that's, that's a fair statement assessment. It's way out, but for your listeners, you know, there is this belief by some that, well, yeah, extraterrestrials are real. And also there's many families, there's many different types of aliens that exist and uh, they all come from different parts of the universe. And, and uh, you're a star seed and you're a part of one of these families. Uh, your lineage extends back to these different star systems. I was just going to say, I'm on Ancestry.com and I have like the global membership. Can you imagine how much they could charge if you could take it <laughs> off world there? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Wait, yeah. your DNA matches up with Alpha Centauri. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're onto something there. Yeah, that's probably why they're collecting all our app. DNA anyway. No kidding, exactly. Yeah, there's there's money to be had in that for sure. <laughs> it's been great talking to you. Um, we did want to ask you just at you know before we go and and talk, we want to talk to you a little bit about what your personal philosophy is on all this and how it's evolved. But and also you had mentioned uh, in your contact with us about things to talk about tonight. You had talked about having your aura read. What was that experience like? I mean, having your aura read is uh, it's pretty readily available for those that, that just search for it on Google, which is interesting to me because I never really thought about it. Yet I had, a, I had a feature on this wonderful woman, Jen Sodini. She is an oracle. She actually just released uh, her own oracle deck called a Minty Oracle. That's oh, cool. this beautiful, beautiful Oracle deck. And, you know, Oracle, if you're familiar with tarot cards, Oracle decks are, are sort of like that, but but there is a, uh, some pretty poignant differences. So check that out if you'd like. But she took me to have my aura read for the first time. So we went to Chinatown in New York City in Manhattan. And uh, I sat in this, you know, sort of... Uh, <laughs> post-war era steel chair of sorts that uh, had all this sort of um, kind of mid-century technology on it, sensors that you would place your fingertips into and uh, diodes that uh, you would you would look into from across the room. Essentially, they take this unique version of, of photo. I don't know exactly what the process is, but 
And this, this snapshot that you get back, this little instant photo, reveals these colors around you, these colors surrounding you, these colors allegedly imbuing from you that uh, this camera captures by capturing this certain form of energy. Is it Curlian photography? Curlian? Is it that? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's okay. what it's called. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I don't know a, a ton about the technology, but I, I do know that traditionally it's something that is uh, very much catching on with this new wave of, of occultists and, uh-huh. and new thought leaders and, and folks that are dabbling into, into witchcraft and, 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 and the general millennial wokeism, right? Aura photography is, is being taken seriously again uh-huh. for its uh, propensity to show visually what could be occurring within one's chakras, perhaps. And they use it as a divination technique in terms of being able to predict two things, typically, what is happening right now with you? And then as the photo, as, as you get further away from your heart and closer to your head and above, the colors will indicate in terms of a timeline what is going to happen. And so these colors predict something. They tell you something and then they predict something. Clearly in photography in general is, is very beautiful and abstract. You yeah. know, it looks like something off a 70s record. Album, right, right right yeah um so <laughs> yeah. so it's fascinating and to me it's interesting just because it's it's just one more of those little techniques right i'm not saying that it's actually doing anything or not i have no idea it's an interesting concept but what is intriguing to me is where will technology take us next yeah because you know who knows at this point in wrapping up here kind of the final question i guess or the the final thing to think about uh, just you personally do you feel like maybe you're some kind of empath or you're that or that you're on a journey of some kind? I mean, why do you think that you're being given the opportunity to experience these things and you know utilize your talents as a documentarian to report them? Uh, what do you think this all means, essentially? Mm, that is a question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, wrap up your entire philosophy of who you are as we close out here. I think that I can firmly say, I don't know what I believe. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know what I believe anymore. Yeah. yeah. No, we get I, that. I really yeah. don't. I, I really don't think I know what truth is. And I think I'm, I'm learning how to just live with that and live inside of that and allow it to ask me more questions, like allow it to enable me to ask more questions and to connect with people in a way that is both tactile, resolutely, and emotive. I'm not here to search for evidence. There's a lot of really, really fantastic scientific-minded individuals out there that are really looking to establish a connection to what this all could mean. And, and I appreciate that, and I'm a fan of that, and I like talking about that, and I like jamming on it. But I know where my skill set is, and my skill set is to tell stories, I think. And my skill set is to tell the stories, to help them be remembered for folks that are experiencing this, because that in itself, uh, without stories, I don't think we're anything. So we need these stories. And I think that's what I'm here to do, help tell stories.
Well, that's going to wrap up our show with Jim Perry from Euphemet. Thanks for coming on, Jim. We'll be back next week with a new show on a topic people have been asking us to cover since we started, so keep an eye on your feeds for that. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, D-A-N-N-Y. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. K-I-N-D-R-A. If you are receiving the current transmission, you are listening to Astonishing Legends. I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.